You're listening to Vet Candy. So you're in surgery. You yep. feel a very poor, a very dense portion of the intestine. What's mm-hmm. going through your head at this point? So we said, uh-oh, looks like she probably ate something because it was just a little like two to three centimeter section that, you know, it was a little um, slightly blanched. So it was stretched a little bit and everywhere else was normal. So we go and make a little enterotomy incision. And what we find is actually what looks like. This episode is brought to you by Credelio for Cats. Welcome to the Vet Mysteries Podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Dr. Courtney DVM and at My Vet Candy. Now, let's get started. Today, we are joined by Dr. Shannon Gregoire. This is an amazing, incredible honor to be joined by Dr. Gregoire because this is Dr. Gregoire's first guest podcast as freshly minted veterinarian. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gregoire. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Cordelio Cat Lodal Honor protects your cat from ticks and fleas, so you can be close. Cordelio Close, the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lodolaner is a member of the Isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio close. Hey, Dr. Courtney. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to uh, share my love of mysteries on your podcast today. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you joining. This is going to be a really fun and fascinating discussion because we are going to be talking about something mysterious. But Mm. before we get to that, unravel the mystery for us about why (laughs) you chose veterinary medicine. First, talk to us about where you grew up. And then second, unravel the mystery for us about why you chose veterinary medicine. Yeah. So if anyone's familiar with New England, I grew up in central Massachusetts, just south of the city. Famously called Wista. A lot of people outside the state <laughs> get really picked up by that name. Yep. But um, grew up on a small family farm. So I was always surrounded by different animals from chickens, horses, dogs, cats, um, you name it. I probably had it at some point in my childhood. And that just really spurred my interest for veterinary medicine because on the farm, you know, crazy crap happens all the time. <laughs> So we always had, you know, the vet out or trying to call them for advice and things like that. So I was like, wow, they, they're pretty cool. And, you know, I think I want to do that someday because they get to help these animals and they can be outside or they can be in a clinic. And I think I just saw a lot of good and bad situations with my own pets. And I'm like, I want to be the person that does that. 
Wow. Okay. Crazy crap happens. And that is a words to live by if you are pursuing a career in veterinary medicine, because it is truly a pretty wild. Now talk to mm-hmm. us about, talk to us about where you are currently and what you recently experienced in your life. Yeah. So currently I'm in back home in Massachusetts. Um, I accepted a job in Connecticut for my first position as an associate. And I just graduated um, let's see, like 25 days ago. <laughs> so that wow. was pretty crazy. 25 days ago. How does it yep. feel? Everyone listening right now, some uh, either are veterinarians, some have thought about being a veterinarian, some are currently on the journey, wherever you are. Maybe you're not a veterinarian, but you've always wondered, what is it like to feel like you, you know, you achieved your goal. You are now a veterinarian. Talk to me and the audience about what it feels like to be a brand new veterinarian. Yeah, it's pretty surreal. I mean, I don't think it'll actually fully sink in until I start practicing in the clinic and I am actually the person who walks in the door with the white coat and the doctor on her her clothes. But um, yeah, it's pretty crazy because you, you know, you kind of bust your butt for four years in vet school and kind of eight years really and you're just always pushing, 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 pushing. And then all of a sudden you get to this day and it's this grand stage and everyone's dressed up in their gown and all your family's dressed up and everybody's families are there. You just walk across the stage and they hand you this piece of paper that says you're finally a doctor. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's just like the culmination of everything is a little overwhelming and it takes definitely takes a while to, to sink in. Yeah, it definitely takes a while to sink in because you're right. That paper, that piece of paper feels sort of, uh, it, it almost feels a little bit anticlimactic in which it, this little tiny piece of paper represents decades of hard work and not just decades, probably a large portion of your life because that has taken up the mental bandwidth, the mental bandwidth mm-hmm. and that mental energy and spirit of thinking about this journey and thinking about Mm -hmm. the ultimate goal. And then when you finally achieve it, I completely agree with you. It definitely feels surreal, but but you are right. It's not going to hit you. It's not going to hit you until you walk into that exam room and you are stumped by a very complicated case. And that's going to say, that's when it's going to hit you like, oh, wow, I have to do this for real. So (laughs) uh, listen, I wish you the most hearty and sincere congratulations. This is a huge achievement. And I know that it's uh, a product of just decades of hard work, sweat, and probably uh, a lot of tears. So congratulations (laughs) to you for sure. Well, thank you so much. Of course, of course. I mentioned that you won't feel like a vet until you are stumped by a really difficult case. Mm. And that's what we're here to talk about today. We're here Mm -hmm. to talk about something that is not necessarily straightforward. A case that we is fairly mysterious. We hear about, you and I know about clinical cases that happen every day in which these unsung heroes like yourself in the veterinary world are Mm -hmm. helping to save pets and improve the lives of pets everywhere, but we don't always get to hear about them. And so I really would like today to just get a chance to talk about a case that isn't necessarily so straightforward, a case that really kind of caught you off guard. So set the scene for us. What patient are we talking about? And when did they first present to you? So this is funny because this was a couple months ago. And of course, I was working in a small referral hospital where the owners are a married veterinary couple. So both are doctors, both are vets. 
and they have a son who's also in vet school and their son has a cat. This patient for the mystery case is this vet student's cat because, you know, everything crazy and the most ridiculous things always happen to a veterinary professional's pet. Isn't that the case? The cobbler's son (laughs) never has any shoes. Exactly. So what is the name of this cat? So her name is Riley. Riley. Okay. I I like to call her Roller Coaster Riley because that's what this case is. (laughs) Okay. Roller Coaster Riley. Tell Mm -hmm. me about the day that Riley stepped into your, uh, stepped into the hospital or the first day that you met Riley. Yeah, so she came in um, basically ADR, right? Not doing right. Um, he's a vet student, so he's very good at picking up on small differences in, cat, in his cat behavior. And he lives with a bunch of students and like, hmm, your cat seems like weird. She wasn't really interested in food or water. So he brought her in because, you know, freaking out thinking, you know, a, co- a cat blinks in the wrong direction and you're, you're like, oh my God, is it going to die? Because That's they don't true. Like to tell us what's going on. <laughs> That's very true. And for everybody out there, I do like how you just blended right into the doctor terms already. I could tell you are just so smooth. ADR is ain't doing right. Okay, perfect. Mm-hmm. So she comes in and just not interested in food and water. Yeah, just kind of flat, you know, quiet, um, not their normal um, description of what she usually does for her behavior. So she comes in and she's a little bit dehydrated and they have all the in-house blood work. So they, they pull blood on her and no significant findings, just, you know, a little um, dehydration. And nothing obviously painful or outwardly wrong with her. So we're like, okay, hmm. Put in a catheter, start her on some fluids, give her a bolus, start her on some fluids for the day. Perks up really well, um, starts to act pretty normal. We're like, oh, that's weird. Okay. Um, and then they take her home. And a couple of days later, she's not doing well again. We're like, oh, mm. my God. <laughs> it, is, it is interesting. It is interesting in which she's just not feeling well. But mm-hmm. the body typically responds better when it's hydrated. So the right. default, the default treatment or the sort of the, the go-to treatment is let's make her hydrated. So you, you were get, you were able to give her some fluids and mm-hmm. she responds. So what are you right. thinking? What's going through your head at that point when she is not feeling great? You give her fluids and she responds. Are you thinking, okay, I think we've resolved the problem, or did something deep inside you say? We probably have something else going on here. What were you thinking when she responded initially? Right. Well, a lot of times, like as you said, dehydration can make them feel pretty crappy. And if you've ever been, you know, as humans hung over, you feel pretty crappy when you're dehydrated. Um, so that initial perkiness, what perkiness was expected. Um, but because it didn't last, you know, you always try the simplest thing first. And if it fixes it, great. But obviously, <laughs> we now found out that just a little bit of fluids um, wasn't enough for this little kitty. Okay. So she comes back in mm-hmm. and what does the family say when they come back in? What are, what are they, what are they expressing? To them? Yeah. So they were talking to the internist that works there and, um, they agree to do some imaging. So we want to take x-rays and do a full abdominal ultrasound and see if we can find anything. So x-rays come back normal, nothing. Um, abdominal ultrasound also comes back clean, normal, nothing wrong. So like, okay, you know, she's still pretty flat again, not doing so well. 
mildly uncomfortable like in her abdominal area so that's what made us do the um the imaging and we're like oh that's really weird so we you know started her on fluids again i think they gave her a, a dose of um onseor because she seemed a little bit painful this time interesting so you mm-hmm. at this point you've done a, just initial baseline diagnostics you've already mm-hmm. done done your blood work she seems a little bit dehydrated you've done some x-rays and ultrasound mm-hmm. all of those are just coming back very inconclusive non-diagnostic essentially normal and yes, you, terrible. it's <laughs> terrible right we're still in the dark we're, we're still sort of walking forward on this journey with no guidance the diagnostics are supposed to give yes. us some level of guidance and you're getting nothing, nothing. okay so you now <laughs> move towards an anti-inflammatory you're treating mm-hmm. what is going through your head right now are is there any differential diagnoses are there any presumptive diagnosis what are you thinking as things are going on uh do you even have a hunch do you even have a hunch about what this could be no not really there wasn't anything really in her history you know we asked if she could if they saw her get into anything or if they saw anything like torn up or if they left trash out or something so we didn't really have any idea what might have happened acutely so we (laughs) are kind of grasping at straws at this point like what is you know, she's, she's not doing well, but she's not, you know, oh my God, she needs to go to the ER. She looks like she's, you know, going to go downhill really fast, but she also wasn't like normal or healthy either. So it's that weird gray area where, um, you know, we want to watch her and maybe repeat blood work again, um, but we're not really getting much of anything. Right. She's straddling that. She's straddling that line between are you actually sick or are you just acting like a cat, right? So that's really really (laughs) tough. What did you do next and why did you decide to do it? So next they just continued, we just continued monitoring her and um, one of the, the veterinarians that was there was a surgeon and he was willing to, you know, just do an exploratory Um, But they didn't want to put her under necessarily if they don't have to, because cats can be notorious for having issues when you intubate and extubate them. So that's always a thought. You know, if we don't have to put her under in surgery, we don't want to. But that was always an option because, you know, you never know what cats get into or do that. You know, she could be totally under the radar and actually have something wrong inside. I do agree. And I shout out to the surgeon who says, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on, but maybe surgery will fix it. You know, it's just interesting. Yeah. The surgeon always just sort of look. <laughs> just to look right. That makes sense that a surgeon would suggest that. And so uh, did you guys move forward with surgery? Yeah. So she, you know, went home again and a couple of days later, now she really isn't doing well, looking a little bit uh, worse, you know, dehydrated again. She's still not really eating or drinking. So then the surgeon's like, okay, we're going to take it to surgery because obviously, you know, blood work and imaging was all not helpful, normal. So we go in and we're searching around, looking, looking, looking. And, um, you know, everything kind of seems normal at first, you know, not, no like hemorrhage or, or anything obviously wrong until we go through um, and see this little area of not quite placation, but almost like it just feels a little tough, a little tougher than normal. And you're like, okay. And this is- you're feeling a little bit of plication or scrunching of the intestine, an area mm-hmm. that feels a little bit more dense, a little bit more tough. And this is all through abdominal palpation. Oh, no, this was in the surgery. Sorry. Wow, this, was, we, this we is amazing. Her up. 
Yep. Wow. Okay. So, so you're in. Yeah, you can yeah, feel. Yeah, you can feel it on palpation, like on abdominal palpation. You can't feel anything. This was in the abdomen, and you're feeling um, slowly and finally with your fingers actually on the intestine, and you find um, a little part of the jejunum that feels weird. That's amazing. In the sense of what you can feel through abdominal palpation definitely doesn't always correlate in surgery. And that's super mm-hmm. critical to, to emphasize yes. because it, at times you say, all right, well, during my physical exam, let me feel the abdomen. And then you say to yourself, well, I don't feel anything. And for some that might, you might escape feeling like, okay, well, clearly there's nothing wrong in the abdomen. But as you can, as you are detailing so well, what you see in surgery doesn't always correlate with your physical exam. Yes, this is really right. good. So and you she wasn't feel- overly painful either on right. the physical exam. So some cats can be just like uncomfortable because they're in a clinic setting. So you can't always determine if it's actually mildly painful or if they're just uncomfortable in the environment. So it's really hard to tell with cats. So you're in surgery. You yep. feel a very poor, a very dense portion of the intestine. What's mm-hmm. going through your head at this point? So we said, uh-oh, looks like she probably ate something because it was just a little like two to three centimeter section that, you know, it was a little um, slightly blanched. So it was stretched a little bit and everywhere else was normal. So we go and make a little enterotomy incision. And what we find is actually what looks like, <laughs> looks like she got into some suture that was discarded by the student that owned her. No needles or anything, just like plain um, suture that he must have used for practice and was cutting and threw away. And she ate a bunch of suture and it had like some hair, like her own hair and like human hair in it. So it was almost like a fur ball with suture that got stuck. So we were able to pull it out and close the enterotomy incision. That's incredible. So Mm -hmm. you are in surgery. You are feeling this intestine. You decide to make a small incision into the intestine. At what point during that incision or during that enterotomy did you realize, okay, I think I know what this is? Just when we started to pull it out of that incision, we could see the blue color of the suture material. And we're like, oh. So she was eating, she must have gotten into something that, you know, either fell behind the trash can or whatever and decided that it looked yummy. Oh my goodness. So now the mystery deepens. Now the mystery deepens because you have found what seems to be the culprit. We think it's suture material. That's what's been causing all the signs. Mm -hmm. You are able to close your surgical incision. Uh, I'm assuming recovers smoothly from surgery. Yep. She recovered very smoothly from surgery. And so now the mystery deepens. Where do you think she got the suture from? Who, not to blame anybody, right? We're (laughs) definitely not blaming anybody. But do you know who kind of discarded the suture and where did she find it? I mean, you know, suture, we usually place it in. And for anybody listening right now, it's usually contained within these red boxes, sharps boxes that are contained mm-hmm. all throughout the hospital. They are sort of a um, a caution area anytime you're near them because you know that there may be sharp things po- poking out of them and special specialized companies come recover these boxes and take them away to be discarded. So that's mm-hmm. where suture generally is. Right. But where do you think this suture was? 
So I think that they eventually found out that they had a bunch of vet students had um, just been practicing their suture patterns, right? So she didn't have any needles in there, thank God, but it must've been like the little pieces of the suture that were cut off through um, a popular uh, model, it's called a daisy. So that's how you practice your suture patterns and stuff like that. So our theory is that um, she was around when they were practicing together and she got into some pieces that maybe were missed when they were cleaning up and she decided to eat them. She decided to eat suture. (laughs) Now, not like it matters, but all of us listening right now, we know that suture fits into two broad categories, Mm -hmm. absorbable and non-absorbable. Was this suture absorbable? Uh, No, it wasn't. (laughs) This was the non-absorbable variety. You know, to be honest with you, even the absorbable variety could, of course, cause issues once it's Mm -hmm. surrounded and festooned in hair and a whole bunch of other debris. So, Mm -hmm. but cats in particular, let's delve into this because this is so critical. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, if there's a cat around, you have to watch out for strength. (laughs) Would you say that's a pretty fair statement? Have you had other experiences where cats have eaten string or gotten into string material? Yes. And we did check under her tongue in the initial exam and there wasn't a string under the tongue, but that is a critical place where you look, um, especially for cats to see if they swallowed something they're not supposed to. And a lot of times it'll be stuck. The end of it will be stuck under their tongue. I love that because this is a Vet Mysteries podcast. And so you can absolutely help to uncover the mystery of what's happening in a cat's intestine or in their abdomen by looking under their tongue. I think that's so critical. Thank you for bringing that up. But Mm -hmm. furthermore, sometimes I think people forget to look under the tongue in dogs as well, particularly puppies. They can engage in juvenile behavior and eat string and other form material. And Mm -hmm. you you do tend to hear about people who say, I'm looking underneath the tongue of a cat because of a string-formed body, but you've got to make sure that you do it for dogs as well. I was going to ask you, talk a little bit about the dangers behind string-formed bodies. Yes, um, they can be extremely detrimental in the intestines. Um, I've seen it so far where the string will go almost all the way through the intestine and then get stuck and it starts to placate the intestines in such a way that the string actually causes perforations in the intestine because it's such a small, thin string that it, it's not sharp per se, but when you have a certain amount of tension on soft tissue with this tiny little string, there's not much surface area for that pressure to be distributed. So it ends up cutting holes in and out of the intestine. And I think one time I was at an ER hospital and we took 20 inches of small intestine out of this cat and had to um, resect and anastomose the intestines with that much missing because it was there was just perforations everywhere and we couldn't possibly like save and suture at all and it was um, really bruised and bleeding so it wasn't uh, a good candidate for saving that. Okay, Dr. Gregoire, there is so much to unpack here, right? Now. This is <laughs> I know that was, a, that was a bomb. Was, yep. <laughs> so you so we'll get to the 20 inches of intestine, right? We'll get to mm-hmm. that, that you had to take that out. But one of the things that you had mentioned, which I think is so critical, is that the plication 
of the intestine caused by string foreign bodies and any linear foreign body, I completely agree with you, that can cause the intestine to bunch up like an accordion as if you're pulling a string on drawstring sweatpants. And then once it mm -hmm. crunches up, just like what you were saying, the intestine continues to move. And so it creates like this saw-like environment and the, that string form body starts to saw through the intestine and mm. cause holes. And that can be particularly damaging. So damaging, in fact, that you have to remove the intestine. It's not savable. And you, right. for this cat, the second cat you're talking about, you're adding more mysteries yeah. than I ever imagined. <laughs> We're getting two mysteries for the price of one here. Yep. That other cat, you had to remove 20 inches. Mm -hmm. And I have intestine. picture proof. Yeah. You have picture <laughs> I have proof. I well, do. That's, I do. <laughs> that's the age we live in, right? If you didn't take a picture, it didn't happen. Right. It, it, yeah. yeah. Right. If, it, if it's not on the gram, it didn't happen. So you have 20 inches of intestine. Mm -hmm. You take it out. Now, this is not roller coaster Riley, but what did that cat get into and why did you need to take out 20 inches of intestine? That cat, we did see the string under the tongue, so he got into something and we knew almost immediately. And we, when we went in, it's just the, the viability of the intestines, you know, the, there was little holes almost entirely that length of the, the 20 inches to the point where we wouldn't be able to close them all because there were so many and so close together. Sometimes the holes were really big and really irregular and there was already, it was turning purple and black in some areas. So we knew that the, the tissue had already started dying by the time we were able to get in there and search for the foreign body. That is mm -hmm. so tough when you are <clears throat> preparing to enter into a pet's abdomen to look for something foreign. And you mm -hmm. know that potentially you're going to find something that's not right. You're going to find the foreign material. You're going to be able to remove it and you're going to feel so good because you know, I'm definitely going to fix the problem. But occasionally you get in there and what you're expecting is not what you find. The damage you're seeing is more severe than you ever anticipated. Multiple holes, compromised intestine, intestine that's just not going to live. And when you have to remove that amount of intestine, it can be really dispiriting. But for some, it feels like a challenge. All right, here we go. And mm -hmm. then the, those surgical sort of, the surgical wheels start moving, right? That engine starts to get wrapped. What was going through your head when you realized, all right, this is way more serious than we anticipated. Yeah, so we actually had to talk to the owner um, mid-surgery and just let them know that um, if they wanted us to continue, that this cat might not ever be fecally fully continent or might have some sort of diarrhea issues depending on how the body um, reacted to removing all the intestines. So we could, you know, there's a chance that it could, you know, resolve completely and have perfectly normal stools, but there's a chance that there couldn't be. So we wanted to make sure that that was something they were prepared to deal with if we move forward with completing the surgery, because that's a big deal. I mean, having a cat that maybe has diarrhea all over the place, you know, is, is hard to deal with. So communicating that effectively is super important in order to make sure that you're all on the same page with expectations 
if the surgery continues. Oh, I can tell you are already a fantastic <laughs> doctor. And I just, I love everything you're saying. And, and, and thank you for being such a great doctor, because the truth is mm -hmm. this, right? If you're taking your cat or your pet to surgery, make sure you keep your cell phone on because you may get a call from the doctor in surgery. This is not a situation where you can drop your pet off for surgery and then disappear for eight to 10 hours. So I, mm -hmm. I really like the fact that you brought that up. And then of course, short bowel syndrome, that's a real concern. There's a mm -hmm. critical amount of intestine that you can take and then critical portions of the intestine that you can remove surgically before it results in, as you said, just constant diarrhea. And mm -hmm. the short bowel syndrome is a serious concern. And it's absolutely something that we have to, as you so dutifully did, is talk to families to let them know what they may be getting into mm -hmm. before removing that intestine. Let's jump back to Roller Coaster Riley for a second, if you don't mind. So mm -hmm. you find the suture, you're <laughs> feeling good, but there's still a couple of critical steps that need to, to take. Roller Coaster Riley needs to recover, but then you mm -hmm. also need to talk to her family. What yep. was that conversation like when you had to talk to Riley's family about what you found and how she got into it? You know, they admitted to the, the suture party and, you know, maybe not being as thorough as they should have been for the cleanup. So it was definitely like a, a awakening moment where they're like, oh, shoot, you know, my cat you know, I thought I had a good cat that didn't, you know, want all these things, you know, want to eat all these things. But at the end of the day, it's still a cat that gets intrigued by anything that kind of moves funny when they when they brush it or when they chase after it. So, um, yeah, they're definitely promised to be more careful <laughs> with their practicing. Um, but lucky for them, you know, having a house full of vet students and then their parents as vets that they got on top of it really quickly and were kept bringing her back when, um, she wasn't doing right so we were able to catch it before we needed to resect anything or before any of her intestines were compromised so she was really lucky that um that it didn't happen and where we did the enterotomy um it looked like there was just it was just big enough to cause a blockage so i think what happened is when we were initially hydrating her the couple of times it probably allowed it to pass a little bit and then she felt a relief and would be better and then a day or so later it would get stuck again and we'd hydrate her and then it maybe move a little bit more so that was our running theory is that you know just hydrating her and giving her a little pain management was allowing it to move through but then eventually it stopped again and we we went in and found it because it wasn't moving anymore Wow, that's so incredible. You're right, right? The intestines love feeling hydrated. I'm completely mm -hmm. such a, a huge fan of if you've got potentially an obstructive disorder, right? If you suspect you ate something, there's a good chance, not a good chance. You should say there's a chance, right? We don't know. It depends on the <laughs> object, depends on where it is, but there's a chance yep. it could move forward with just some hydration right? Just mm -hmm. some fluid management. And so your first inclination for fluid management was so smart. That was so critical. But I think what's interesting too, and let's not overlook this, is that even in a house with vet students and veterinarians, even things like this could happen, right? Mm -hmm. So vets are not immune to all the problems that pet parents experience every day, which is yep. cats just like to eat stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> they just yeah. like being cats and, you know, yeah. like 
not giving us any information and expecting us to solve it. Yeah, it's so interesting that Riley did not tell you what she mm-hmm. ate and what's going on, right? You, you know, yep. that's the that's the mystery. But I will say this: this is critical, uh, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. It's like the the morbidity, the damage, the the mm-hmm. the disease that you see that is re- strongly correlated to the length of time that you see issues. It's strongly correlated to how long the symptoms have been going on. So when dogs and cats, and particularly if you see these gastrointestinal signs and they've been going on a long time, then unfortunately studies show that the prognosis or statistics show that they, they may not do as well as those who haven't had the symptoms for very long. And one thing that's mm-hmm. also interesting too, is that they talked about the location of the foreign body. So if the location yeah. is very high near the stomach and the small intestine, they actually have a slightly worse prognosis than if it's a little bit lower in the intestine. So all those points I thought that you brought up are absolutely critical. So do you have any updates right now on how Riley's doing and what's going on with her? Yeah, I got an update two months later and um, she was doing really well. Um, completely back to normal and healthy and everything had healed appropriately from what we could see. So no complications or issues thereafter. So that was really nice. (laughs) Oh man, this is such a good news story. I wasn't sure initially when you told me that you were in surgery, what was going to happen, what you were going to find. But now that I know that she's healed well, that makes me, it's really heartwarming. Just Mm -hmm. so I know, and so everyone out there knows, is surgery your focus? What is your special interest as a a sort of a motivated young veterinarian with all of this youthful energy? What is going to be your focus going forward? Yeah, I think my top two are really, um, I like ultrasound imaging and imaging in general and surgery. I both find really awesome. In full disclosure, when I was going through school, I actually wanted to be a radiologist, right? No Initially. Way. Yeah, yep. definitely. I was so focused on radiology. I'd worked with some of the best radiologists in the nation. And then I had this epiphanal moment where I was like, all right, well, you're more talented in surgery. Why don't you do that? But there is still mm. that dual love, that nexus between imaging and surgery. And so it sounds like you also have a love for that as well, where you love ultrasound and you love surgery as well. Yeah. Yeah. I find it really interesting. And, you know, the ultrasound is definitely a very intriguing skill to me. And I try to get better at reading x-rays all the time too, because that can give you so much information. And I did a a radiology rotation at Piper Memorial actually in Connecticut. And it was just fascinating. All the little um, minutia of the image that, you know, something that I might think is wrong is just you know, something wrong in the patient um, was just, you know, like an overlapping of something that's normal or something of the positioning was off. Um, And it really gave me a good appreciation of how important positioning is for x-rays and also um, for ultrasound, how important it is to really get very familiar with what a normal organ looks like with different probes and everything um, and different depths. So it's really a a time-oriented skill to really get good at it. Five-year commitment, 
10-year commitment to getting really good at ultrasound. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's definitely not something you could just take a course and then say, all right, I'm armed with this information. You probably at that point know just enough to be dangerous. You know what I mean? Right. But I completely agree. Know your normals, right? Because if you spend mm-hmm. time, a lot of time knowing normals, then the abnormal will pop out to you. I had no idea that you had done a radiology internship. So mm-hmm. please, we got two really critical things left before yeah. we let you go, because we are running out of time. I didn't get to this earlier, but help everybody out. And I hate to put you on the spot, but <laughs> this is a Vet Mysteries podcast. Mm-hmm. Tell us one mysterious fact about yourself that people wouldn't generally know just listening one. to you right now. Well, I guess something that a lot of people don't know and that you probably, you don't know, like just looking at me would be that I have um, a black belt and a, Okin- a Japanese Okinawan martial art called Gojuru that I got when I was 17. You have a black belt in martial arts. And what's I the do. name of the martial art? It's called Gojuru. It's- Gojuru. Gojuru. Yep. So you, pra- you started practicing Gojuru when you were when, at what age? I was probably like 10 or 11. 10 or 11, black belt mm-hmm. in Gojuru. Interestingly yep. enough, I started practicing Kenpo Karate at age six and I no stopped way. at age age 16. Yeah, so we, yep. we, you and I have that in common. I believe I was third degree That's brown awesome. belt. Third degree brown belt was going to take my black belt test and uh, I got into wrestling in high school. So unbelievable, oh <laughs> unbelievable. I thought you were going to say, if you don't mind me saying, if you're comfortable, uh, that for me, the mystery would be uh, Dr. Gregoire, how tall are you? Oh, <laughs> I am six feet tall. You're six feet tall, Dr. Gregoire. Yeah. When you walk into a room, it is absolutely magical. It's such a it's such a awe-inspiring and, and powerful moment. I love every second of it. And uh, for me, that is wonderful that you uh, have just achieved the genetic lottery of hitting nice, <laughs> being nice and tall. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, six foot black belt veterinarian who's going to be an outstanding surgeon. I mean, can we please just write your autobiography right now? Can we just do this right now? (laughs) Chapter one right right here. This is incredible. Rollercoaster Riley will have her chapter as well. Well, listen, you (laughs) are absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for doing this. Please let everyone know out there where they could find you and get in contact with you. Um, yeah, so you can um, find me at Dr. Shannon DVM on any of the social media outlets. And then my email is contact at drshannondvm.com. So you guys can send me any questions or anything that you would like to know about veterinary medicine or vet candy and things like that. So yeah, feel free to reach out, guys. Oh, this is awesome, Dr. Shannon. You are have been an absolute institution and a... Yeah, just a vet candy celebrity. You know what I mean? You have been <laughs> out front putting vet candy in the eyes and the ears of people for, for years. So I, I so appreciate that. And it's Dr. Shannon DVM on all mm-hmm. social platforms. We'll be right back with more vet candy. Cordelio Cat Lodaloner protects your cat from ticks and fleas, so you can be close. Cordelio Close. 
the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lotaloner is a member of the isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio close. Well, Dr. Gregoire, I am absolutely heart just overwhelmed with joy. I am feeling energized after speaking with you because the future is bright. The future mm -hmm. is so bright for the profession when we have people like you. So thank you so much for joining me. And if we do a round two, would you be open to joining me? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always down for another mystery. I'll, I'll keep them in mind. So I have another one for you soon. Yes, keep those mysteries in your back pocket <laughs> just in case we do it again. All mm -hmm. right, fantastic. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. See you later. Okay, of course. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Gregoire. I mean, just new graduate, first time ever as a guest podcast, as a doctor. And as you can tell, the future is so bright for veterinary medicine. She's absolutely an outstanding doctor already with the way that she's able to communicate to clients, understand critical diseases, particularly linear foreign bodies and cats. And then, of course, Roller Coaster Riley eating suture. It just goes to show you anything linear, any string, any foreign body, make sure you keep an eye out for it if there are cats in the room. Folks, we just got to hear from a six foot black belt veterinarian who is going to be an outstanding surgeon. So if that doesn't add some intrigue, I don't know what does. Well, that's another Vet Mysteries podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and stay tuned for more episodes from the Vet Mysteries podcast. Make sure you understand that there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond and please take care of your pets and each other. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.